Let's step into Hebrews 11. It's where we are. We're actually going back a verse if you were here last week. We're going to look at verse 29. This happened before Jericho, before Rahab. It's one verse. We still stand for the reading of God's word. So even though it's short, with a sense of anticipation, let's stand. Hebrews 11, verse 29. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they perished. By faith, the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were drowned. This is God's word. You can be seated. This is the first time, uh, as we've looked at Hebrews 11, where we're not talking about a single individual. Now we're talking about a whole people. Uh, By faith, it says, the people of God. The people of God passed through the Red Sea. If you know anything about this story, and most of you do, because... Hollywood has made several movies about uh, this whole Exodus story. Um, it's, it, it's one of the most profound events in the Bible. It's dramatic. It's miraculous. It's larger than life. And through this nation, a nation is born. And they're not just born. This isn't just July 4, but they're born again. In fact, to use maybe New Testament language, they're they're, they're saved. Now, as we look at this event today, I don't want to reduce this event to metaphor. I want us to know that what we're looking at is a real historical event happening in real time to a real people by a real God, but I still want us to see the picture. Because the picture that this story provides is powerful. In fact, for the Jews to this day, I mean, this this one event is uh, the equivalent of what Good Friday and Easter is to us. And I I want you to see the connection. I mean, if, if we could go back in time right now and ask an Israelite just days after this event, who are you? Who are you guys? And I, I think they could answer something like this. They, they would say, we're a people. We were once enslaved. We were in bondage. We were under the sentence of death. But because we took shelter under the blood of a lamb, we were able to pass through the throes of death to new life. And we're on our way to promised land, but we're not there yet. But we have the shepherd who's going before us. He's among us. And he will be with us until we get home. And I think if I asked you, who you are today, I think that's how we would answer it. We were once a people enslaved, living in bondage, under a sentence of death, but because we took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, we've passed from death to life. We're on our way to promised land, but we're not there yet, but we have a good shepherd who's going before us, who's going to be with us, among us, in us, until we get home. 
Now, the way that Jewish sages speak about the, the Red Sea, about this exodus, about passing through these two waters, uh, they, they talk about it as, as, as a birth canal. Because as a people, the people had to pass through. They had to pass through this birth canal, and as they passed through it, they use this language. They're born again. A whole nation was baptized. They, they were leaving their old life. They're passing into new life in God. The Apostle Paul picks up on some of this in 1 Corinthians verse 10. Where he says, He says, For I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers and sisters, that our ancestors were all under the glory cloud. They all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses and in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Christ. In fact, Jesus is not the first to coin this phrase, to be born again. It's all over the literature of Jesus' day, because to them, to the Jews, this this phrase, to be born again, best described what happened to them when God took them out when they passed through the waters. In fact, when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, this trained biblical scholar about being born again, the confusion for Nicodemus is, is not the concept of being born again. He's a, he's a biblical scholar. He understands that. That's, that's part of the dialogue of Jesus' day. The confusion comes when Jesus says, you, Nicodemus, you, as a believing Jew, you must be born again. And I'm sure that was very offensive to Nicodemus. Because born again to a Jew in Jesus' day was only something the Gentiles needed to do. Certainly not a Jew. Because by faith, we Jews pass through the waters. Now rather than get into this debate, I want this question to fall on every heart in this room. Have you been born again? Have you passed through? I couldn't ask a more important question. By faith, our text says, The people of God passed through the sea. They were born again. Have you passed through? Jesus says this. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, anyone who believes in me has crossed over, has passed through from death to life. And I think all of this this, this language just begs some very basic questions. If we're passing through, then what are we passing from and what are we passing to? Because what we're really talking about here is salvation. And salvation involves two things. Salvation means God is getting us out of something and he's also getting us into something. 
That's why Exodus, I think, is such an important story in our Bible. In fact, Exodus literally just means way out. And before we look at Exodus 14, I want us right now to consider how God is communicating to us. Because rather than just giving us a bunch of propositions to explain life's biggest, most profound reality, instead he gives us this amazing story. Because the deepest things in life, I don't think, can be explained by mere propositions. They require story. They require pictures. And, and these stories and these pictures, they're real events in real time involving real people and a real God who's orchestrating all of that so that today we could understand what it means to pass through, to be born again. So with that said, let's go to Exodus 14. I'm going to ask you to stand again. God's word. Amazing story. Starting at verse 5. If you have a Bible like mine, it's on on page 55. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the king is Pharaoh. Pharaoh and his officials changed their mind about the Israelites and said, What have we done? We just lost our whole slave labor force. So Pharaoh had his chariot made ready and he took his army with him. And he took 600. Six is always that number of man. Uh, this, is, this is man. The, the, in man's strength. Chariots. He took 600 of his best tanks. That's literally the word in Hebrew. Same word for chariot is the same word for tank today along with the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses and chariots, horsemen and troops, pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-ha-iroth, opposite Baal-zephon. And as Pharaoh approached... The Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified, and they cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us into this desert to die? I take groups to Israel, and we go into the desert, and this is what everybody says to me. (laughs) Did you take us out here, Rod, to die? (laughs) Was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us to this desert to die? What you have done to us by bringing us out, what have you done by bringing us out to Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone? Leave us alone, Moses. Let us serve the Egyptians. Moses, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm, and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You just need to be still. And this is God's word. You can be seated. 
Now from this, and if you know the context of this, the previous chapters, um, this story teaches what we need to get out of. We need to get out of Egypt. Egypt, in the Bible, is the place where God's people not only live like slaves, but have the status of slave. Which is why over and over again, our Bible, when it talks about Egypt, also has this other clause oftentimes attached to it. Egypt, house of bondage. In fact, the word Egypt itself in the original language, Mitzrayim, means to be walled in, to be caged in. This is where God's people are caged in, where they can't get out. I want us to see the power of that picture alone. Because we all know Egypt. We all know what it means to be under the power of someone or something. We know what it means to be caged in. We know what it means to be stuck in a place that we just can't get out. I think we have some sense, a little bit too, even of what it means to be slaves, whether it be to an appetite or to a relationship that has control over us, or it could be an addiction, it could be a behavior, food, sex, computer. It could be this, this insatiable need to be liked. It could be this, this, this chronic, deep need to, to be on top, to be the best, to win. We live in Egypt. And what I want us to see, that while the Israelites are in Egypt, caged in, enslaved, God comes to them with this promise. It's in Exodus 6, 6 and 7. You can uh, read it or you can just listen. God says, therefore, say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Can you imagine hearing this? But it doesn't stop there. He says, I'll free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment, and I will take you as my own people. I grew up in church. I grew up uh, in a Christian school. Um, and, and, and for the most part, I was, I was taught that Salvation was, was simply God forgiving my sins. Listen, that's, that, that, that's an awesome reality. Awesome! Especially if you did things that I did and said things that I've said and thought things that I've thought. That God forgives, not just forgives, but as the psalmist says, that he removes them as far as the east is from the west. As great as that is, My problem is deeper than that. Your problem is deeper than that. Because what about the fact that I still sin? And what about the fact that sometimes I get entangled in my sin? And what about the fact that my sin still not only hurts me, but it hurts the people around me? Is God going to do anything about that? 
And see, what God needs to take us out of, I think, is far more great than we even think it to be. Our problem is deeper than just needing forgiveness. And this is what the picture of Egypt communicates to us. It tells us that our problem is that we are in bondage as slaves with a slave identity. With a slave nature. That this is what God needs to get us out of. See, our bondage is, 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 is more than just we do bad things. Because sin is deeper than just bad behavior. Sin has layers to it. It, it has complexity to it. It, it. It's deeper than just what people can see. Because what happens when you peel one layer away, you see another layer, a, a, a deeper root sin, staring at you. I mean, there's sin underneath our sin. Why do I lie? Because my pride was threatened. Why do I slander? Because I need to puff myself up. Why do I steal? Because I have a selfish heart that needs things. And see, if you have the guts then to look honestly at yourself, you also start to realize that the sin underneath your bad behavior is the same sin underneath your good behavior. That same selfishness and pride that causes you to behave badly is the same root, root sin that's also causing you to act good and spiritual. Which is why Jesus calls out the Pharisees. Because these Pharisees were probably the best behaved, most spiritual people of Jesus' day. But Jesus says, you hypocrites! Everything you do is for the praise of men. Everything you do is to exalt yourself. Because Jesus looked deeper than their behavior. He looked what was underneath their, their good behavior and their spirituality. And he saw their pride and selfishness. I'll tell you, you get married. And marriage has a way, doesn't it, of just exposing root sins. Then you, you, you have kids. And you enter the realm of parenting and your kids get older. I'll tell you, in my attempts to be a good father and a good husband, so many times I've just seen the sin of pride and selfishness just lurking be underneath my, my attempts to, to be good in these areas. The pride of, of wanting to look good. The, the, the pride of needing to be right. The pride of not admitting my wrongs. The, the selfishness of not wanting to enter uncomfortable places, the selfishness of, of, of protecting myself. Being a pastor. Trust me, I'm not complaining about this in, in, in even the smallest bit. I absolutely count it joy that I get to serve him and serve you. Love it. But I'll tell you, being a pastor... So much of what I do is, is it, 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 it's just out there for people to see. And so what you, you learn early in the game is that uh, you're either going to get the praise of men or you're going to get its critiques. 
And, and God has used all of this in my life to expose some really gross root sin in my life. Whether it's the sin of pleasing people, or the sin of taking myself way too seriously, or the sin of living for the opinions of you instead of uh, the smile of God. I, I'm aware of these realities. And I, I, I understand how, how these root sins can quickly become a part of who I am. They can literally infect my very nature and identity. And, and, and I'm aware that what needs to change is not just the superficial. It's not just uh, my behavior that needs to change. My heart, my heart needs to change. Do you know this about yourself? And do you know that that, that bondage, our bondage, has, has many layers to it? And, and God it wants to do so much more than replace bad behavior with good behavior. God needs to get us out of our selfish self. Being slaves to ourselves, slaves to pleasing ourselves, slaves to exalting ourselves, protecting ourselves, promoting ourselves, trusting ourselves. And the solution to this is not religion, it's not becoming good Pharisees. We need God. And we need more than forgiveness, as good as that is. We need to be born again. And if that's what we need, guess what? God promises it. That's what's so cool about Exodus 6 uh, 6 and 7. It's, It's literally worth memorizing and claiming. Because first God says... Israel, I'll bring you out from Egypt. I'm going to free you from Pharaoh's chokehold on your life. God promises that. And I want you to see the picture of this because Pharaoh at this time is the most powerful man in the world. And those chariots are the greatest war machine the world has seen. But yet God brings them through that, out of that. And then when you stop and think about Israel just being people on foot, the powerful become powerless, and the powerless become powerful by faith. Second, God says, not only will I bring you out of Egypt, but I will deliver you. And you ask, well, what's the difference between God bringing them out and God delivering them? Well, when, when you're a slave to something for a long period of time, it becomes a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your nature. It becomes of your, part of your identity. And, and, and what we need to know is, is that salvation is a lot more than just an emancipation proclamation that we need to be delivered from a slave nature and a slave identity that if we've been slaves for too long, it's been pushed deep into the core of our being. And what I love about the Exodus story is that Israel, as they're passing through the waters, it's not just sins being forgiven, but her status is completely, radically changed. From slave to son. 
from slaves to Pharaoh to God saying, you Israel, you are my son, my firstborn son. That is, that's radical. Paul, Paul's getting at this in Romans 8. He says, the spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you don't have to live in fear anymore. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship so that you can cry out to God, Abba, Daddy, Father, Is that part of your identity? Does that burn inside of you? God says, here's a third dimension. He says, I I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. Redeem is this whole idea of purchasing. And this brings me into another beautiful story in the Bible, a picture that, that communicates to us what redemption is. Read the book of Ruth this week because there's this man, Boaz, who's called a kinsman redeemer. And he's looking at Ruth and Naomi who've lost everything because they lost their husbands. Naomi literally changes her name from Naomi to Mara because Mara means bitter. And she says, my life now is bitter. And Boaz buys their very life back by marrying Ruth. Because this whole story is a love story. It's a love story. God is a lover. And God sees us in our Mara and our bitterness, and he promises to buy our life back. And the way he's going to do it is through marriage which is the fourth dimension of God's salvation. God promises Israel, he says, I will also take you. That word for take there is the word marry. Literally, God's saying, I will marry you. And this is exactly what God does. Because when you keep reading on in Exodus, you see that God's going to take Israel to a mountain and they're going to walk down the aisle to their bridegroom who is God himself. And a marriage is going to take place. Because God never just takes us out of Egypt as an end to itself, but he takes us out so he can actually take us in, into what? Himself. Because God is a lover. And he made us to know him and to know his love. And see, this is what God's salvation promises. God does wants to do so much more than just forgive us. He wants to remake us. He wants us to leave our old life. He wants us to trust him for a new life. He wants to give us a whole new status, a whole new identity by which we live. Ezekiel 16 is one of my favorite passages in the Bible because it's one of those uh, Old Testament passages that sums up the whole story. And here God just sums the whole thing up. He said, Israel, I saw you. I saw you when you were born. You were literally thrown out into a field. You were orphaned. You were left to die. You were literally kicking in your blood. And, And God says, I took you in. 
I made you grow like a plant of the field and you blossomed and you became beautiful under my care. So I covered you then with my love. I entered into you with a covenant and you became a queen. Do you see the pictures that God gives us? No longer slaves, sons, no longer orphans. A queen. As C.S. Lewis said, this is the best fairy tale ever written, but it's true. It's true. Have you passed through? Have you been born again? Tell me some of you right now. Those of you who are wondering right now, please tell me. You're thinking, help me, pastor. How does this happen? See, the exodus is not just a picture of what we get out of. It's not just a picture of what we are brought into, but it's also a picture of how we get out. And look at verses 13 and 14 of Exodus 14. The people cry out to God before that we're going to die. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance, the salvation of the Lord that he will bring to you today. The Egyptians you see today, you'll never see again because the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Close your eyes if you have to, because I want you to picture them. I want you to see them. They're stuck between 600 of of Pharaoh's best chariots. And behind them is the sea. Because we have a profound reality here that the Bible is communicating to us because our whole world lies between Pharaoh and the great sea. And unless you have passed through, that's your reality right now. Because there is an enemy who so wants you under his control. He will do whatever he can to enslave you, to get you under his rule. And even when it feels sometimes like you're getting out and you're getting free, I'm telling you, that's when you really need to get ready because he will come at you with everything he has. He will unleash his minions on you because he wants you back. The enemy never lets us go easily. He pursues us and pursues us and pursues us. And if that's what's in front of us, what's behind us? The sea. What's the sea in the Bible? A metaphor for chaos. It's a metaphor for hell itself. In fact, the first thing that God has to do... uh, when he creates the world, is he has to rule and subdue the sea. He has to put the sea. He has to separate the waters. Uh, he, he has to put the sea in its place. Picture God's people, because here they are. They're between Pharaoh and, and, and the sea, between the enemy and hell. And before we look at how they got all, I got, we have to also ask this question. How did they get there in the first place? How do you and I get in Egypt? One word answer, sin. 
And sin today is becoming a politically incorrect term, but I don't care because it's the only world that can explain the stuff that's going on in our world, the stuff that's going on in our country, the stuff that's going on in our city, the stuff that's going on in our communities, the stuff that's going on right here. Sin. Sin is what puts us in Egypt. Because what sin does is it unleashes chaos. It unleashes decreation. Because it takes everything that God made, he made it to be good and whole and harmonious, and it, it, it plagues it with disease, decay, death. Sin unleashes the forces of hell. Sin leads us to hell. And now I'm talking about something else that's politically incorrect. Hell isn't my word. It's Jesus' word. And that's where our world would be. We would be, we'd be stuck between Pharaoh's army and the sea and utterly helpless and hopeless to do anything about it. But this book is gospel. It's gospel. It's good news. That God is going to do something about everything that plagues us. Because in the story, Exodus 14, the people begin to cry out, we're going to die. And what does Moses say? Just stand and look, watch, be still. Because God's salvation is not something we do. It's something God does. It's all him. We just need to stand still and watch. In fact, I looked up this word. In some it says salvation. In some it says the deliverance of the Lord. When I saw it in its Hebrew, I literally wept. I wept. Because what I read in Hebrew was the Hebrew word Yeshua. Israel, stand and watch. The Lord's Yeshua. Watch him. Because he's going to fight for you today. You just be still. And on this day, Yeshua did. First, he wars against Pharaoh's armies. In verses 19 and 20, he, it literally, he, he walks out. That's the word in Hebrew. He walks. He doesn't move. He walks. And then he stands. He stands in front of the people of God between them and Pharaoh's war machine. It's like a scene right out of Lord of the Rings where the fellowship is, is where Balrog is, is, is this dragon is trying to threaten the fellowship and all of a sudden Gandalf comes out with his staff, throws it on the ground, looks him in the eye and says, you will not pass. That's what Jesus does. He fights. And my favorite is verse 21. All night long. Picture this. It says, the Lord, again, it's the word walked. The Lord walked the sea back all night long. He's walking on water. So that by the time we get to the New Testament, oh, we've seen Jesus do this before. Walking it back. 
With the help of? The east wind. The east wind in the Old Testament is the holy wind. The Holy Spirit. Can you see the two of them in tandem? And the text literally says, uh, they're walking the sea into dry land and the waters were divided. Where do we hear, hear that language? That's creation language right out of Genesis 1. Because the, the thing that God is doing here, it's more than a miracle. New creation. And Yeshua makes a way where there is no way. He takes on Pharaoh. He takes on the sea. He wins. We have to see this. Because this all points to a greater Pharaoh, an ultimate Pharaoh, an ultimate sea that he's going to take on, that we read about, that we're more familiar with in our Gospels. And Jesus comes to this world to take on everything that plagues us. And I love it because everything that plagues us, this is how Jesus won. It was placed on him, all sin, the curse that causes decay and death, even hell itself, it was unleashed upon him. Or probably the best way to look at it, on the cross, Jesus was decreated so you could be recreated. He did that for us. He fought. He won. Defeats the enemy. Paved the way out of Egypt. Out of bondage. In fact, even the waters of chaos become Maim Kaim, living waters. The waters that we can now pass through for our baptism or we're born again. How do we get this? Every religion says you're here. Life is here. There's a chasm here. You build the bridge. You do it. Through your performance, your good works, all that you do, all that you offer God, strive, work, it's on you. And the gospel says, be still and watch. Because it's not about us. Our job is simply to look at him, to stand amazed at who he is and what he has done and how he has done it. In fact, our trying to add to Christ's work, the work that bridges this chasm through the life that we should have lived, he lived it, the death we deserve to die, he died it. That is the bridge. That is the way through. When we try to add to that, we subtract Christ's work. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's a gift. And then we walk. Hebrews says, by faith, they walked through the sea. They had to trust God's way, the way that God had made. And, and, and again, 
we got to be careful even with our faith that we don't turn our faith into a work. And is my faith good enough? Because I'm sure that day, think about this. Exodus uh, 14 says there's a wall of water on their right, a wall of water on their left. Can you imagine our church passing through that, that, that wall? I can see Dan Mike just dancing his way through, okay? And then I can see someone, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. It's not the quality of our faith. It's the object of our faith. Which is why uh, Hebrews says, fix your eyes on Christ. He's the author and perfecter even of our faith. Trust him. I'm going to read this. I, wrote, I read it on Easter and so many of you came up to me and said, can I have a copy of that? Charles Spurgeon talking about the work of the Holy Spirit, he says, it is ever the Holy Spirit's work to turn our eyes away from self to Jesus. But Satan's work is just the opposite of this. He's constantly trying to make us regard ourselves, think about ourselves instead of Christ. And Satan insinuates your sins are too great for pardon, and you have no faith, and you do not repent enough, and you'll never be able to continue to the end. And you don't have the joy of God's children. And you don't have a really good hold of Jesus. All these are thoughts about self, and we shall never find comfort or assurance by looking to ourselves. But the Holy Spirit turns our eyes entirely away from self. He tells us that we are nothing, but that Christ is all in all. Remember, therefore, it is not your hold on Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves thee, it is Christ. It's not even faith in Christ, though that be the instrument. It's Christ's blood, Christ's merits. Therefore, look not so much to your hand with which you are grasping Christ as to Christ. Look not to hope, but to Jesus, the source of your hope. Look not to thy own faith, but to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith. We shall never find happiness by looking at our prayers, our doings, and our feelings. It is what Jesus is, not what we are, that gives rest to the soul. If we would at once overcome Satan and have peace with God, it must be by looking unto Jesus alone. Keep your eyes simply on him. Let his death, his sufferings, his merits, his righteousness, his glories, his intercession be fresh upon your, upon your mind. When you wake in the morning, look to him. When you lie down at night, look to him. Oh, let not your hopes or fears come between you and Jesus, but follow hard after him and he'll never fail you because my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. He's so good. Have you been born again? Have you passed through? Maybe today is the first day you stop looking at you and trusting you and living for you. And today is the first day you fix your eyes on Jesus, the author, the perfecter 
through faith. The only way to the Father. Because as Jesus said, verily, verily, I say unto you, anyone who believes in me has passed over from death to life. Let's pray. And God, if there is anyone in this room right now who maybe made a commitment for the first time to give up living for themselves, trusting themselves, have put their trust in you, Jesus. God, give them, open the eyes of their heart that they can see you, who you are, what you've done, how you've done it for them. And that you would be there all in all. For those of us, God, who still have passed through, but we get stuck in our sins and we still get stuck in our little Egypts, God, I pray that we would be so assured that you've dealt with the, the big Egypt and you've dealt with the big Pharaoh and you have settled sin once and for all, which frees us up then to look at our sin and to be honest and to repent. We love you. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. I need you.